I'm Ece Özdemiroğlu. I'm Sabina Apetz. And I'm Jill Duggan. Welcome to season two of Join the Dots. We've spent our careers giving advice on the environment and learned that choices are never straightforward. But working through the complexity is rewarding. Here in each episode, we explore the issues surrounding an everyday choice to help you decide what's best for your health, wallet and our planet. You can find more information about this and other episodes on our website, jointhedotspodcast.com. And we'd love to hear from you on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Policymakers talk about the dual crisis of climate change and nature, its loss, degradation and pollution. We talked about climate change quite a bit on this podcast in terms of how we heat our homes, how we drive and daily updates from the Conference of Parties from the Climate Change Convention that took place in November 2021 in Glasgow. We also talked about nature, how we produce our food, how we reduce polluting our air and water. But as we said in the last episode, when talking about adapting to climate change, it's really silly to think about climate and nature as if they are different things. In this episode, we're joined by Kate Jones, who is a professor of ecology and biodiversity at University College London. We will talk about, well, ecology and biodiversity and the intricate links between the state of nature, the state of climate and human health and well-being. Welcome, Kate. Thank you for joining us on Sunday, the 10th of April. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So can we start with you telling us a little bit about yourself and your work? Now, I hear that Charles Darwin is your eighth cousin six times removed. (laughs) That is a start to a podcast. I know, but the the distance is so far that you're probably also his eighth cousin. (laughs) And you're from Turkey. Yeah, well, I'm Professor of Ecology and Biodiversity at UCL. And I'm in the Department of Genetics, Evolution and the Environment. And and I guess my work really tries to cross disciplinary boundaries at the interface of ecological health, but also human health. So at that intersection of human health and biodiversity. And I've done quite a lot of work on understanding the state of biodiversity and how you measure it. So I've been developing lots of artificial intelligence tools to monitor ecological health and track trends in the populations of wildlife, but also, you know, how you use citizen scientists to collect data and to process data and to take part and co-develop projects with citizen scientists. And then finally, I guess my other work, it looks at trying to understand the consequences of biodiversity changes. And I specifically look at the interaction between ecosystems and how um, animals are interacting with each other in their environment and the emergence of infectious diseases. So that's particularly topical at the moment. And I've got a particular love of bats. (laughs) (laughs) So I kind of look at firstly understanding what's happening and then look at the consequences of that in terms of impacts on health. Thank you for that potted summary of the many things that you do. And there are many things to unpick there. The first of which I want to jump in and ask you, can you please tell us what is biodiversity? 
biodiversity is just a concatenation of two words, which is biological diversity. It's very simple. It just means the diversity of life on Earth, but it also goes across land and sea and the air. But also it means diversity in genes, populations, species and ecosystems. And ecosystems are just species interacting with each other and their abiotic environment, you know, their kind of soil and the water. Even if we understand what biodiversity means, can you tell our audience why it matters? Okay, so the first thing is that you need to understand what the state of nature is so that we've, we've seen huge declines in the number of species on this planet. The recent estimates have shown that over a million species are at risk of extinction. So this is big declines that are going on. So for example, across the globe, we've seen an over 60% decline in the last 50 years. It's been going on. And that that's driven really by degradation of the habitats and massive land use change, but also increases in human populations and our kind of increases in consumption. So why it matters is because we're destroying the things which we completely depend on, like all air and water that we drink and breathe is produced by nature. So they're an intrinsic part of ecosystems. Everything that we depend on is provided by a very small thin ring of air that's around the planet. And that's our world. You know, we're completely dependent on that. I think that there's been lots of ways to think about nature over the last 60 years or so which have been really interesting and and this was really summarized by Georgina Mace uh, a few years ago that it was a paper called Who's Conservation and she was trying to say what is conservation and what is this relationship between nature and people and it was absolutely fascinating and, and it started off with nature apart so nature was in a nature reserve and a wilderness area we save nature by saving these wilderness areas it's like we're apart that was it and then I think with the destruction of ecosystems and natural systems more recent years in the 80s and so we kind of focused on declines of nature and, and understanding processes that the kind of deforestation land use change you know understanding these declines and then I guess we moved into a more kind of ecosystem service approach to nature. So what is it providing to us? You know, it's a very human-centric view. What is it providing to us? We want pollination. We want timber. We want clean air. It's all about us. And it was all about ecosystem services. And then I think finally, just before you know, she died a couple of years ago now, but when she was writing this paper, she was kind of seeing this change of these are more integrated understanding of ecosystems being not apart from humans, like being these coupled systems. So you have these anthropogenic systems and then you have these natural systems, but they're actually all one. And actually we are completely reliant and our resilience is dependent on these intact ecosystems, especially for things like climate change. We, we really need intact systems to make sure that we can respond in a a resilient way and so I think we've kind of moved into this kind of era of people and nature not not just what nature can provide to us but how we function together and I think that's a really interesting kind of development I think some of the policies that we've been seeing over the last few years reflect that kind of 
understanding that nature is <laughs> nature is is us it's, it's like all of our planet this is vitally important to understand and to make sure that we have a have a sustainable future thank you kate i want to grab on the one of the points you said that we're dependent on intact systems but we're acutely aware there are very few intact systems remaining so really we need to manage in the context of sustaining and restoring and managing in multifunctional environments so how do you deal with the dynamic tension especially in places like europe where every inch of land is already well the uk is very managed it's not intact so we have to be creative about how we balance those things in a resilient and sustainable way we kind of need to know something that we don't know like we don't know how much nature we need so we don't know how much we can damage these ecosystems before they stop functioning and that's really critical to start to understand and we don't know how much to restore it back to what state you know we don't understand that direct linkage between intactness of these ecosystems and the functions that they provide to us but we're starting to have some ideas so for example the work I've been doing on infectious diseases we looked at a huge number of studies across the world that looked across a degradation gradient so it was a study that kind of looked in a more intact system and a less intact system and then compared the species present in those two areas so we put together all of these massive amounts of data and these studies to look at which species disappear from those less intact systems, the next door to each other. And we can see that the species which manage to get through this kind of degradation filter that can survive in these less intact areas are species which we get infectious diseases from. So we're creating these unhealthy landscapes because the species that can survive in those degraded areas are things which possibly can live fast, die young, invest less in immunity and carry these infectious diseases, which can then leap into us. So I think it's really important that we start to understand what those processes are and how much nature we need. So that's another thing that Georgina May said is about how much nature do we need? And that's billion dollar question. <laughs> we don't know, but it's more than we have now. I would hazard a guess. You were saying that you'd seen some encouraging signs of us thinking more about people and nature, but and I am not an expert, but I've seen some, if you like, more worrying signs about the idea that we should have areas of rewilding, which is great, but that they are separate. And then we carry on with life that buys us the opportunity to carry on doing all the bad things as well. What I'd be really interested in, if you've got any examples, is what does good look like? So when a policy comes along and you think, well, that's well thought through and that's likely to have a good outcome, what are the things that we should be looking out for and supporting? And what are the things that give you cause for concern that might be well-intentioned but probably misaligned? Things which I have, I thought were a good move or a good direction to move towards was kind of integrated plannings of land management and I think land is really powerful it's like a sense of place is a really powerful human identity and it's a 
a powerful kind of sense of a community as well. And I think that place-based land management idea is a, is a very good one. And for example, talking to farmers about how to manage their land for food, community and nature. So public money for public goods instead of really weird subsidies which are promoting the wrong thing producing huge amounts of food which is you know not used or is wasted and having a kind of place-based management with the community to understand what they want and what they need I think those are things which I'm very keen on and even some of the things like biodiversity net gain is also something the policy is kind of promoting rewilding within you know you get penalized if you if you start rewilding further away again it's kind of trying to promote things within the local area and you can see in terms of mental health for example green spaces by people are really really important for children and for adults that that's something that's really really important and so they're kind of the benefits of those areas within cities are huge. You know, the Victorians knew that and it, somehow it got lost. But it's becoming more apparent now that that's a really important thing. So it's really important to have cities which are designed with nature in mind and not somewhere else that the local community can't access. And that wonderful interaction with, with nature is lost. Can we do a footnote on uh, biodiversity net gain? Because it's not as commonly known, probably. It's a policy where it says if you do a development and you lose land and you lose biological diversity, you must compensate the local area for it. And you must create something or you must improve something more than what you damaged. And I think what you're pointing, Kate, there are limitations. So you don't lose a 10 hectare or one hectare area in one place and then go and plant some trees somewhere where it's cheap to do miles and miles away. But you have to create these new spaces to benefit the both the kind of animal and plant communities, but also human communities too. And I, I wanted to throw in one more thing, Kate, as an oceanographer, green and blue spaces, the water in our spaces is almost as critical as the Absolutely, plants, yes, I think. it really is. And you were talking about things that I've seen that I don't think are a good move. I guess it's, I, I'm slightly worried about carbon adaptation and mitigation through nature, nature-based solutions for adaptation and, and mitigation. And I, on the whole, I think that's a good idea, but there are some kind of weirdnesses about those things where you oh I'll plant a hugely fast-growing forest because that's nature and that will store some carbon and when there are kind of monoculture invasive species that's not native there you're causing all kinds of problems and you're causing all kinds of invasive pathogens possibly there as well and also those kinds of forests of all one species tend to be much less resilient to any changes that happen. So there's much less biological diversity to interact with changes that happen. So I think uh, I'm slightly concerned <laughs> about how some of these ideas are going to be carried out. And so like biofuels is another craziness, which I didn't really understand, <laughs> but oh, we'll grow biofuels instead of burning oil it's like well you're just degrading the landscape further and you're causing carbon to be released by using those crops and then you have a negative 
biodiversity, it's not a win-win solution. <laughs> so I think there are some win-win solutions which we need to focus in on and understand what the win loses are and, and be a bit more open about those. I hear on Radio 4 all the time, oh, we're going to put this huge forest in. And that, well, what kind of forest and where is it Where is it going? Was that an actual peatland? Because that would be bad, you know, if you did that. It's those kinds of things, that kind of illiteracy mm. about ecology that I find deeply distressing. Is it just illiteracy or is it also arrogance, isn't it? There is a little bit, so people just hang on to something and then go, oh, we're going to fix this. It's a quick fix, simple solution. We're always under this kind of, what you started off with, this notion of we are all integrated, humans are part of nature. It actually requires really almost a mindful and humble approach to understanding the problems and trying to find the solutions, not just keep fixing things all the time. Coming from where you guys are around the policy and where I am in the ecology, there is so much we don't know, so much we don't know. (laughs) It's very difficult sometimes to think of what a no-regret solution might be in that situation and that's that worries me but we hardly know anything about this ecosystem that we're in for example we didn't didn't understand that you know the rhizosomal networks of you know interactions with the soil and the microbes and the trees are absolutely fundamentally critical for their growth we didn't understand that trees talk to each other through those rhizosomal networks we didn't understand that plants swap resources with each other they nurture their offspring under their canopies we didn't grasp that until recently (laughs) and our tools are increasing all the time our precision and our understanding is increasing so anything we do needs to be an adaptive process where we're learning all the time as you say we're learning as we go along and there are missteps along the way and the missteps are actually usually reliant on the the fact that, as you say, some of this knowledge is the idea that trees talk to each other, that they help, they send goodness to the ones that are sick. This is very, very recent, isn't it? That example, for instance, it's called the Wood Wide Web. And that was a decade, not more really than that. And that was prompted by, you know, some really innovative work in North America, but also in Europe around understanding how trees don't grow back when you clear farmer, you know, or they, they do grow back, but they struggle and like understanding that there's a whole network of a whole interaction with the soil, which is really, really important. So I think these things are, you know, our understanding of that is growing hugely, but that's something that's been relatively recent to understand the kind of scope of what that all means. I think it's really scary. There was a whole there was a paper last week about listening to the soil so that you can hear these networks communicating. So I mean that's really cool, but that's a really innovative use of tech, which I saw that paper. That was so exciting. <laughs> One of our first episodes was on COVID in 20. 20- 20. And and Jill made the point that the more we degrade environment, the more we were exposing ourselves to new diseases. And Kate has actually a paper precisely on this point. And I think I've heard you say this, Kate, before, that ecologists were warning about these pandemics several years before COVID happened. And I'm afraid 
you don't think this is the only or the last one that we will have if we carry on like this. Can you tell us a little bit about that paper and maybe Jill will have follow-up questions? Yeah, I guess my kind of work on the disease links to biodiversity started about, I think it was 2008, I published the first paper, a broad-scale paper on that to look at the standing a bit more about the processes that these new diseases emerge. So we looked across all of the literature to see when the first jumps from animals to humans happens for a number of different diseases and two-thirds of all infectious disease around two-thirds of all infectious diseases in humans are from animals so it's either from domestic species or from wildlife so we mapped that all out and did some analysis to try to understand you know when and where these things happen and some of the processes. And so we were getting these results, which were kind of like where degradation was happening at the fastest rate. So where human populations were growing, biodiversity was declining. Those were the areas which had more infectious diseases emerge in the past. And so we had a kind of global hotspots map for the planet in 2008, which had all of these areas which we thought were the most likely to have an emerging disease, which includes Wuhan. So we had all of this, these maps, and actually that prompted, that paper prompted a huge investment from USAID in um, monitoring these areas for diseases. So understanding what diseases were in animals in those areas and promoting this thing called One Health, which um, has various definitions but was kind of meant to think about the animal health, like domestic animal health in human health. And sometimes it can it also mean wild animal health and conservation. A lot of input and money was put into these areas to start monitoring these systems. And some of these big labs, which, were, which we now know of, were kind of funded from some of those early work. But people have been uh, working in in that area of China for a number of years uh, around coronaviruses, particularly. So coronaviruses have a really long evolutionary history with bats. Bats have the most diverse number of coronaviruses. So that suggests that they've evolved with them for a very long time. And there was a, a huge interface in that area around human population growth, farming, agricultural, you know, intensification of farming, but also some of the wildlife trade that goes on and just the kind of interaction space between wild animals and humans is vast across that region. And a number of papers in early 2019 pointed out that there'd been a number of spillovers of coronavirus, like SARS-like coronaviruses into the human population, published early in 2019. And warning that something bad might actually really happen. And then it did. So this is my shocked face, not shocked. But a lot of those projects had been defunded for a few years, hadn't they? Or some of the surveillance and global investment for political reasons had been undermined, had it not? I think that is a problem and that PREDICTS programme, which is the one I just talked about, about the USAID funding had come to a stop. But there is a bigger problem than that. And that is that the public health bodies, the ecologists, conservation people, vets don't talk to each other. 
there's very little understanding about what drives these things to jump and how to prevent that. And, and I think there's siloed thinking around all of these areas. And, and that's why this has happened. This is a problem in a lot of these what we call wicked problems that we try to solve with global environmental and socio-environmental economic problems, isn't it? We're used to sitting in our own little silo and this cross and transdisciplinary work isn't always encouraged or rewarded as much as it should be. Yeah, absolutely. And some of the funding isn't there for that kind of thinking. And also there's a lot of, in your silo, there's quite a lot of arrogance around the other silo. I'm not pointing fingers to anybody, but it's the ecologist's fault for not talking to the, the public health people. And it's the public health people thinking that they don't need ecologists. They're just bunny hugging, looking at trees, you know, like there's no understanding on either side about we need each other and that it's an integrated problem. Then you throw in climate change and you say that temperature increases are accelerating some of the differences, changing the migration patterns or behaviours of animals, creating the opportunities even more often for new diseases to jump species. And I'm just thinking in the UK at the moment, I, I was telling my daughter today that there are no free range eggs at the moment in the UK, and she hadn't realised, I said, if you look carefully in the supermarket, it will tell you that normally these would be free range, but because of avian flu, they're all kind of locked up in barns. And I I think there's a lack of discussion. As you say, one of the things is everybody's working in silos, but even the kind of immune from the changes that are going on, and one way is to find some way of breaking this out. I'm just wondering what we should know and should be thinking about because climate policymakers need to be part of this discussion, as well as those looking at biodiversity, those looking at health, everything is interconnected. So it's a, a really integrated problem. So with non-obvious solutions at the moment, because say, for example, you have areas with more rainfall, with higher temperatures, you might have movement of particular mosquito populations and they might bring in dengue fever or, or malaria, for example. But some mosquito species don't react. They have a limit to the temperatures that they possibly survive at or water bodies or anything like that. So there are some species which just will not survive in those areas and some species which will. And so actually it's not that obvious from the face of it which species will survive in those areas and which ones will be a problem and what the net effects will be on dengue fever, on yellow fever, on malaria. And so actually you need a bit more of a synthetical approach to understanding what the impacts are. And it's not just about climate change. You know, it's about how land use is exacerbating some of the climate effects. It's about how people are moving into those areas because of climate shocks or other susceptibilities in those systems and so it's a very complex issue that you need to have think about the hazard which is the animals the susceptibility to the, of the humans and their vulnerability so it's a very interesting but actually quite complex problem. I think it's an important point you make, Kate, that when we tend to talk about climate change but there are many global changes beyond climate as you say, 
in the way we're managing and changing habitats and landscapes, the way populations are moving, and everything that even that they're interacting, but they're not entirely the same. And sometimes we focus on too narrowly on, say, climate change when habitat loss or something like that might be just as important. So the nexus is often what you're looking at, isn't it? Yeah, it's a socio-economical, ecological nexus, I would say. That climate change and biodiversity loss are, are not separate issues. They're just they're different faces of the same central issue, which is increasingly dangerous impact of our choices, you know, on the health of our natural environment. And I think that's that's the thing that we need to keep in mind. And we can't really afford to tackle any of those threats in isolation. I think they need to be addressed together. And I think they need the highest priority of, of, of policy change and action. I kind of think that the climate change is like your lovely holiday home, but it's on the edge of a cliff and the waves coming in and eventually it will slip down the hill or it's starting to now, but it, it will just plummet at some point. And biodiversity loss, it's like the house is also on fire. I think the biodiversity angle is just a symptom of our degradation of land use, which is just devastating and so massive. We need to get a handle on it because it's part and parcel of the same issue. You're releasing carbon because you're exploiting the, the soils. The soils are losing carbon. We're not doing it in a sustainable way. Agriculture in the UK was never set up to be sustainable. It was set up to produce loads and loads of food after World War II. It wasn't a sustainable system, never was designed to be, didn't have to be at the time. So we need to rethink everything. But we don't want to talk about that. We don't want to talk about our choices. We want to fix individual problems within our science or policy boundaries. And we don't want to face the, the fire or the cliff. Well, it isn't part of the problem there that we as humans probably aren't very good at focusing on more than one problem or variable at a time. I know when we've built models to look at multiple interacting stressors and endpoints and drivers, we're very good at thinking about one linear pathway of risk. But that multidimensional complexity is really hard for us to grasp. And we're easily distracted as a society. We, we were thinking about COVID nonstop, and now it's Ukraine. And the concern that we keep getting distracted by crisis by crisis, instead of focusing together on the interacting net drivers, is very concerning. I, I do think, though, in terms of things, positive things, <laughs> But because they're so interlinked and that there are different sides of the same problem, it also means there are win-wins that you can, you know, you, that there are lots of between biodiversity crisis and climate crisis. So land degradation, for example, is a really huge issue with uh, biodiversity loss, but it's also a huge emitter of carbon. And so, you know, if we can restore some of these ecosystems, especially peatland, which actually emits carbon if it's damaged and is a mass soaker of carbon if it's intact you know that's a perfect thing to restore what are we doing burning it i can't even explain to you how weird and strange that is and we put it in our fertilizer i mean 
what on earth are we doing? That's insane. <laughs> Indeed. Here we are back to Pete again. Don't yeah. buy Pete. I was going to say, it's one of the things that this has happened incredibly quickly. Firstly, Industrial Revolution 200 years ago, massive population explosion. So I keep being reminded that the population of the earth has, has nearly quadrupled in, in my lifetime, which makes me deeply depressed. And we haven't caught up with that. So burning peat when there were 5 million people in the UK probably didn't matter. Now that there's 65 million people in the UK and pushing 8 billion globally is a whole different story. And what we haven't caught up with is our impact on the earth and the things that might have looked okay even in the 1960s just aren't okay and that we didn't have enough knowledge about the impacts of things and we didn't regulate and we, we were encouraged to let business do their own thing, which, you know, if you take it from the purely health point of view, you could say it led to lung cancer from smoking and all the other uh, related diseases. And we've done that on an absolutely massive scale with the planet is we've let people just exploit with a lack of information whilst the landscape behind that is shifting and that we've had exploding populations and those populations have, in general, wanted to have the things that we're all benefiting from as we sit on the internet. But so, you know, we've got this, this communication problem, I think, about how little we know, what the impact is, and what the, the kind of contributory problems are, which ought to bring all of those right policymakers together, but don't yet, because it's been quite a recent recognition, I think. Yeah, I think I just pick up on that point, Jill, about human health and well-being. We are the healthiest, longest lived, most prosperous we have ever been in our existence. We live longer, more prosperous lives than we ever have before. Massive increases in health, of course, uh, you know, and, and well-being have made lives much better for billions of people around the planet. I mean, that is an amazing success story. There's an amazing success story in that, you know, we kind of gets lost in all of this doom and gloom. But now we're at the point, this inflection point of actually, it's not okay. It's going down, <laughs> going back down again. And I think that's the kind of point that we need to get across. And I think the public health people have been really good, actually, in the last decade or so in realising the relationship between climate change and human health. And they've done a really good job on understanding that. But what's lacking really is it's joining up with the ecological crisis as well and making sure that those links are really understood between ecological degradation and human health. And it's not a proximate cause, but the ultimate cause of our health rather than, you know, you can't just fix it with an aspirin. <laughs> you have to actually restore the ecosystem to have any effects. But some of the challenge is scaling, isn't it? It's the delay effects, but also still, although less and less, those that reap the benefits of exploitation on the planet and those are bearing the costs of climate change and health and inequality are not the same although we're seeing that changing where people are finally seeing the impact in their own countries and lives but there is a disconnect and a scaling problem in getting people's attention isn't there absolutely for example degraded coral reefs and the populations of animals and plants which are living on those 
uh, reefs are supporting huge amounts of people below the poverty line and they're reliant on those ecosystems for food. And the people that were devastated by you know, tsunamis, for example, that those communities are really dependent on mangroves in order so that they, if a tsunami comes through, then it's the force is dissipated around the coast rather than hitting the village. Mm. So it's those people that don't have money for the infrastructure and the resilience to respond after a, a kind of really big impact has hit or disastrous hit or something's happened. Those are the people that are more reliant on natural nature-based solutions for their existence. And they're the people that are going to be impacted more than, than we are. On a positive note, perhaps on that type of impact is that we're doing some work with insurance companies who are also now realizing how reliant they are on nature, say how reliant they are on coral reefs and mangroves to protect the infrastructure that they insure. They don't want to walk away from a premium market. They want to be able to maintain a market. So they want to keep the risks low at an insurable level. But that's a recent realization that, you know, to protect their products, the assets that they insure, they can't just keep building walls to keep the waters and the storms away. They need to invest in nature to look after what they created and then their market. So they definitely have the means. So they have the means to study. They have the means to protect nature, etc. But I want to... Um, yeah, can, can I tell you about something about corals? Please. You can tell us anything. So my, one of my PhD students is working with a whole team of marine people and talking about corals. The, the sound that corals make on a reef attracts the little baby corals so that they know where to deposit onto the coral reef. And so oh, if, you cool. can, if you can record those sounds, you can play it at a reef and recruit baby corals onto the reef and make it better. Oh, I love that. That's so cute. Can you just tell us, just give me some comfort that the people at the international level doing something about this stuff. And it's not just a complicated problem that we're scratching our heads with. The Convention on Biological Diversity was 92 in Rio, and that got set up. And then there were some, some targets for biodiversity that were missed, which were mostly around reduce the rate of loss. So they weren't very ambitious. Let's reduce the rate of loss so that was one of the first targets missed so that was uh, 2010 then there's some post 2020 targets which got a bit delayed because of the pandemic so I'm not quite sure what the latest is on that but one of the positive things is that we have linked a lot of those targets up to the sustainable development goals so that's a positive thing and also, there was a new international panel set up like the IPCC, but for biodiversity and ecosystem services, ITBES, so International Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. So that was as a kind of rallying point like the IPCC for the evidence base. And I think that's been really good in terms of trying to corral all the evidence all together and have a more powerful voice to governments. So I think I can see quite a lot of positives at the moment because the latest IPCC report a few weeks ago was talking about the importance of nature-based solutions for climate change adaptation, not mitigation, adaptation. 
And Itbes is saying climate change and biodiversity are the different sides of the same thing, same processes. So actually in the past, we've been more divergent, but I think we're kind of coming together a bit more. And, and so I guess the, the, it is the same problem. And thankfully, there are solutions, you know, the same solutions would help both. So I think that that is something that's positive. That brings us to a point. What can we as consumers, campaigners, citizens, what can we do about these things? So I think one of the things that I am struck by is just our land use. And we use a huge amount of the available land on the planet for us, for food. And about three quarters of our arable of our cropland is for meat. And so one of the ways to reduce that dependence on land and use it for something else, store carbon or monkeys or improve the number of bats there are, whatever, is to reduce our dependence on meat. And I'm not trying to be imperialist about this or colonialist. I'm just trying to say that even if we could cut down a little bit on our meat consumption and dairy consumption, thinking in a, in a holistic way about what you're replacing it with. But I think that would be really useful because it does seem mad to feed loads of cows when we could just be eating the actual plants <laughs> directly. So skipping out a whole step. So I would say I think that's possibly the biggest thing that you could do is to reduce your meat consumption or reduce it in a way which has, has got the biggest benefit. So beef, for example, is really, it uses lots of land and you know pigs and chickens aren't quite so bad, but there's lots of papers about this. So have a look at that. So I would say try to reduce your meat consumption. I think if that's one, if there was one thing you could do, that would be the thing. Thank you for that very clear suggestion of one thing. But before we end, I wanted to ask you about your new centre because we talked a lot about yeah. people and nature being integrated and your centre is called People and Nature Lab. Is that right? Yes. So, um, so just tell us what you're doing about in there. Well, we're setting up a new centre mm-hmm. at UCL called the People and Nature Lab. And this has the uh, aim of putting ecology at the heart of society so that we try to understand, uh, stop, the ecologists stop talking to themselves about these issues and start talking to wider society about them. So we're we're going to be talking to the architects and the land use planners so that we can understand how we can integrate some of these ecological networks and theories into understanding how we manage our land better. We'll be talking to computer scientists and developers so that we understand how to monitor nature better when we think about some of these new policies that are coming in to improve and rewild areas. We need to know how to monitor terrestrial environments with sound or with vision or something like that. And we also want to understand the links between ecology and health. So that's really, really important part of contributing to mental health, also infectious diseases and air pollution. 
And we also want to really try to integrate ecology into communities. So thinking about how to develop citizen scientists and community groups so that they can ask and answer their own questions about the environmental degradation. So it's a research and a teaching hub. So we are going to be offering four new master's programmes around these topics as well in uh, uh, new buildings in East London, in the Olympic Park. So this is one of the biggest, the biggest expansion in UCL's history. So we're going to have these two new buildings in uh, the Olympic Park by the orbit. So come and see us when we open in September. That's so exciting. Congratulations. I'll take (laughs) you up on that. So we've had a really fascinating and wide-ranging conversation with Professor Kate Jones, who's Professor of Ecology and Biodiversity at University College London, otherwise known as UCL, also where I did my master's and she did hers. And we've touched on a lot of things. Firstly, biodiversity is short for biological diversity. It's a term that people struggle with, but it covers every aspect of our lives And the amount of variety and biological diversity in the planet has been decimated by human beings and our activities and our preferences. And we've got to understand how this has happened and what's happening increasingly over the last decades, but our knowledge is still improving all the time. What we have learned is that nature is incredibly important for every aspect of our lives, from the food we eat and mental health, how we travel, we need to think about it in every aspect. And I think one of the messages Kate has tried to get across to us today is the importance of policymakers and planners considering it in every aspect from, from health and planning and transport and everything else to try and create sort of networks of nature that are good for us, but also good for the planet. And one of the examples that I particularly liked was the fact that in the last 10 years, this is how new some of our knowledge is, in the last 10 years, we've learned about trees communicating with each other, with the the fungi underground and how they work together. And this is, you know, there's new knowledge like this coming all the time. Now, one of the important things we've also learned in the last 10 years is that when things go out of whack, then things like COVID happen as well. And I think Kate was telling us about the work that was done back in 2008 to look at at hotspots for new viruses, where Wuhan was identified very early on. And then you throw climate change and other changes to the way we live into the mix, and the opportunities will increase. So given all of that, some of it quite worrying, but some of it quite interesting, I think we also heard some positive things about the way people and policymakers are beginning to think about this. There's a few things that we need to do. There's a biodiversity COP every few years. It's not quite as often as the climate COPs, but there's a bit happening next month. And we should be paying more attention to this because it doesn't get the same level of attention as climate. And we really need to recognise that these are the same different aspects of the same problem. We need to think about our actions. And I think the one thing that you've told us is if we care about this, three quarters of the the land, agricultural land, is used for producing food for animals. And one way of increasing biodiversity and getting a better balance in nature is to eat less meat. That's not saying eat no meat, but for your health and for the planet and for the greenhouse gases and for the biodiversity, eat less meat and drink less dairy, I think was the other that came out of that because cows are particularly bad in all of this. And I think finally, as part of the more encouraging side of this, 
I think Kate has flagged that she is opening a new centre for people in nature at the Olympic Park in East London. And so hopefully our understanding of this really important topic will get better and better over the coming years. So thank you very much, Kate. Thanks, guys. It was really, really fun to be uh, with you and talk about these issues. Thank you for listening. Thank you to the rest of the team, Neil McCune and Anna Gunn. You can find more information about this and other episodes on our website, jointhedotspodcast.com. And we'd love to hear from you on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. <laughs>